We gather every Sunday in order to praise and worship our God. Even as I chatted with so many of you as you walked in those doors. Wow. Some of you are grieving. Some of you are discouraged. Some of you are battling unbelievable sickness. Some of you have a birthday today. Some of you, and, and the list could go on. There isn't any way that I could craft or focus or get a message that would absolutely encourage and convict and strengthen every one of us today. No preacher ever could do that. But what preachers can do is trust that the Holy Spirit is going to take God's Word and to massage your heart and to be able to give you strength where you need strength and convict where you need to be convicted, to open up our eyes to blind spots and to ignite us into action. It's not always going door-to-door -door witnessing or making sure that you are watching the little tots downstairs. God is amazing. God is loving. God is gracious. And so many times in our culture and in our church, we are too busy to hear from God. So would these next few minutes just be a time for you to bask in God's presence? Would you be able to open your, word, open the, your Bible and, and hear from God for you so that you leave this place seeing God a little bit more clearer and have the ability to be able to well, not only function, but thrive this next week. Not because your circumstances are perfect, but because you have a God. You have a God that isn't, well, just around on Sunday mornings, around every moment of every day. In our text today, we're going to be focusing on John chapter 17. Jesus is at the very end of his little discussion that took chapters long with his disciples. Right after this passage, Jesus literally takes his disciples to the garden. He goes to trial he is absolutely mutilated, dies on the cross, being put into the tomb, and then raised just a few days later. But Jesus at this time is done talking with his disciples. We all get to that point, don't we? In management or parenting or whatever, as, as you, you're done talking. You're done. You've done everything you possibly feel you could do and now you're done. And that's where Jesus is at. 
So what he does, sometimes we do the same thing, but, but what he does is pray. We have John 17. It's a recording of what Jesus said moments before he left for the cross. Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to just be able to open up our eyes. Would, would you, Father, be so active? Would you encourage us? Would you convict us? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a people washer. Do you watch people a lot? You go to places and all of a sudden you just kind of lose your thoughts and you're watching how people dress, how they walk, how many packages they're carrying. Um, and it can, your mind goes crazy sometimes, depending on where you're at. But I've learned much from watching the Velasco family these two weeks. You know, I don't know, at least in our church, if, if, if there has been a funeral or an event that has absolutely changed people's lives. I don't. Maybe I have been insensitive in the past. Maybe I didn't seen clearly in the past. But I can tell you this, is that Anybody who was here last Wednesday has just talked to me about it and just so drawn to who God is. As I said, I watched people. And from the very first call that I received that I was in an accident and airlifted to Condell. And a meeting with the family that was there. And watching them. And hearing them gather together. And praying. Step by step. Listening to doctors, but praying. Gathering around. I am sure every rule was broken as far as that ICU room and how many people were in there. I am so sure. But I saw it. I saw the day that they pulled life support and the tenderness and the prayer and the confidence saying almost ridiculous things if, if you didn't understand the family. Like, God, we're going to trust you. We love you. And we love our husband our dad, our grandfather. The way that the family tenderly took the head and kissed the forehead, trusting God was going to do something unbelievably miraculous. And he did. But mostly, we celebrated Al's life last Wednesday. Every one of us would have wished he walked down that aisle. In some ways, I was actually wondering if maybe he'd open up that casket and get out. But you know what? Nothing like that happened. It didn't. 
And so all the way to when Al was lowered in the ground, this family came together, grieving differently than those without hope. I learned about God. I learned about Barb. And do I think today was easy when she walked in? No, I don't. And do I think these next few weeks are going to be easy? Next few years are going to be easy? Next few, you put it in there. I don't. I don't. But I know this. is that Jesus has made a difference in this family's life. And it shows. This is the God we're talking about today. This is the God that Jesus, the Son, is talking to the Father about. And he's pouring his heart out. You know, this morning we're going to learn a whole lot from Jesus. He is the perfect model. He's the perfect mentor. And although I think God well, uses all kinds of examples throughout the scriptures, I, I just feel I need to pay a little bit better attention to Jesus. And I want to learn from him. And one of the things that Jesus does is praise a lot. Now, now work with me on this one. Doesn't that seem a little bit odd? Well, okay, he's the son and should talk to his dad. I, I get that, but don't you think like he knew everything anyway? Like, why would you spend all night praying to your dad? It seems kind of like, well, that's a waste of time. But it wasn't. And so when he was finished talking, Jesus prayed. It was right before the ultimate act of obedience. It was right before, well, we find out something that he was hoping there'd be a different way because he prayed differently in the garden. But we know that prayer is critical for the journey. Yet if we were to be honest, one of the things, especially as your shepherd does, is talk to you about your journey. Almost every one of us, because you almost think like you have to confess to me, and I'm not sure what that means. Oh, Rick, I wish I could grow in this and this and this. But almost that little list is always prayer. You know what, I don't really pray that often, but whoa, I wish I would grow. Because you've had drilled in your head from a little one, prayer's really important. But we struggle. We struggle with prayer. So, I can read about prayer... And try to learn from others from a book on how to pray. Or I can see what Jesus did. And I can learn how to pray like that. 
I can. You know, this is another reason why actually we meet once a month to pray corporately. Because so much of the time is that although you know about prayer, and we do pray often every day, one of the things I've learned over the years is I can learn so much by listening to somebody else pray. I can. It's not about some fancy words or some theology that I need to, you know, refine, but it's about how does someone who walks with God talk to God? And who better than Jesus to learn from? In fact, my hope is, and you guys have heard me say it from up here, is that the most vital, the most vibrant, the most important meaning of Crosspoint Church will be our monthly gathering, the second Tuesday of the month. When we come together as a group and we petition God and we pray for others and we ask God to do something special in us and in our church and that we would be bold in our witness and that people would come to faith and they'd be healed of their physical pain and their spiritual pain. I'm hoping someday that's the first thing you put in your calendar. I'm hoping someday that, that this place will rock on the second Tuesday. I believe it does now. But I can't imagine what it would be like a church so dependent upon God that they come and pray and seek God's face and pray on behalf of others. Well, that was a long introduction. So let's jump into the text. Because his prayer teaches me about God. It teaches me about Jesus. It teaches me about disciples or believers. It teaches me about prayer. And to be quite honest this week, as I was reading a prayer, it, did ju- it just didn't feel right to break it up. In some ways, I think I'd like to take another 10 weeks in John chapter 17. In other ways, I think there's great value into reading this prayer all together to see how Jesus responds to his Father. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to read through the text, and I'm going to make some observations, and I think it will, will encourage you, convict you, strengthen you, empower you. Let's look. Chapter 17, we're going to start at verse 1. If you um, don't have Bibles, you can follow me along on the screen up front. Chapter 17, verse 1. After saying all these things, now, Jesus here has just got through talking. But I think it even goes further back than, ver- uh, than chapter 13, I've got to be honest. I think what he's really saying is this, is I've poured my life into you for three years. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your Son so He can give glory back to you. For you have been given, or for you have given Him authority over everything. He gives eternal life to each one you have given Him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, the one you sent to the earth. I brought glory to you, Jesus says here on earth, by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into glory, the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know everything I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you. And they believe you sent me. Jesus starts off, Father. We've read the pattern prayer in Matthew. You have heard him refer to God the Father as Father often. But what we just need to be reminded is here, this intimate term was quite earth-shattering for all of the disciples and all the rest who were part of that Hebrew culture. You would never, ever, ever address God as Father. Remember, again, in the Jewish tradition, the steepest Jewish tradition, they wouldn't even say the word. They would never even write the full word with vowels. They would just use consonants. There was such awe, such reverence, and that's great. But Jesus broke the cultural understanding of God. And he addressed God as Father. Even in some places, he called him Abba, Daddy. So different. But Jesus says this, the hour has come. The hour that we have thought about since creation. We know that this has to happen. We know that all of these people, all the people before them, and all the people after them are dependent on my obedience. So he says, glorify me so I can glorify you. Honor me, Father, so I might be able to mirror or reflect you well. And how did I do that, Father? I did it by completing the work you told me to do. I give you great glory every time I listen to you, Father, and I do what you ask me to do. I just say it this way. If you want to magnify God, you want to glorify God, just do anything He asks you to do. Now certainly, Christ came to redeem. He came to restore. He came to reconcile every one of us who put our faith in Him. That was huge. He is going to complete that. He's going to finish this, and in just a few days, not only is he going to be put in a tomb, but he will rise to life and give life to anyone who puts their faith and trust in him. But he also modeled intimacy. 
loving the Father. He says here, the way to have eternal life is to know God, is to know Jesus. Now, he's certainly talking about life in the future, but he is also talking about life here. And if you've been in our study in John, each one of you recognize John talked a lot about life. He talked a lot about connecting, about knowing, about understanding, about spending time, about this relationship. That's why John's so much fun to read. He said, you want to know or experience life, get to know God. He said this, I have mirrored or modeled life for you well. All the way through, especially these last three years, the disciples were part of it, said, hey, I showed people who God was. Now again, that's pretty cool, especially for Jesus, I mean, if you want to know how God loves people, you want to know how God forgives people, you want to know how God, whatever he does, we can focus on Jesus. But he's going to turn a corner here. He's going to start talking about the disciples and how they can do the exact same thing here on the planet that Jesus Christ did. Now, we're going to see this in just a few verses. So I just gave you a spoiler alert. All right? But he starts off, hey, I honored you well. I listened to you well. I modeled for people. I showed everyone, everywhere I went, who God was. And I'm telling you, we're going to put a parenthesis on this. Okay, it was okay for Jesus. It's just not okay for us. Those expectations are way too above and beyond. But we're going to see what Jesus prays for here. We know that he modeled ministry. Even in chapter 13 and, and just from that time on in John, he taught them how to love others. He did. He picked up the towel. He served people that didn't deserve it. He says, you want to know how to love? You serve. You give. He was making disciples and eventually handing this baton off, this last message that we've studied. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. We talked a little bit last week, like, really, God? These guys are really ready? They didn't look ready. They were all going to scatter. But no, they were ready. They were. They were trained and given opportunity perfectly. And then Jesus says this, I faithfully passed on the message. That's what mentors do. That's what disciple makers do. Is that they continually, they're spokespeople for who God is. And Jesus, at the very end, just said, I faithfully gave them the message. In fact, the way I'd like to put it is that I finished well. I finished well, all the way to the end. Whatever you told me to do, Father, I did. I did. And then he mentions right at the end, he goes, I can't wait to see you. 
I can't wait to get home. I know this isn't my home. I know I was here just for some 30 years. I realize you gave me assignments. I realize I completed everything that you asked me to do. But I can't wait to see you. Again, without making this whole message about Al and his family, they knew that. They knew this was not Al's home. They knew it. And so even the choice of pulling life support as much as they wanted to keep that amazing man. <laughs> wow. Choose between that and glory. Oh. He can't wait. We can't wait. Now the truth is, is that if we put all of our marbles in this bag, it's really sad to leave. If we were all about making money and we we're all about establishing power and getting all the best toys and living in the best house and driving the best cars, well then I, my guess is you're going to miss it. You know? Because that's what home was. It's just not home. Wow. And then verses 9 and 10. Let's read that. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you, Father. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them me, so they will bring me glory. Here it is. Jesus is praying that his family reflects Jesus well. That his family brings glory to God. That his community, that his disciples, when they walk out, people see Jesus. That these disciples are going to forgive, and these disciples are going to love, and these disciples are going to actually even receive persecution and respond exactly the same way Jesus did. One of the verses that you heard at Al's funeral that was one of his favorite verses was 3 John chapter 1, verse 4. And this is how it reads. I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. That my children are walking with God. That my children are reflecting the Father wherever they go. I'm telling you, any dad or mom, if God gives them a long life and they reflect back, That is exactly what their heart's desire will be. I don't actually care how successful you are. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. I don't care how many books you have written. I don't, and you can just go. You know what I care about? I care about that you know the Lord Jesus and that you walk with him and that you fear him more than anything. That's what Jesus was saying. Lord, may my kids, my family, my community, wherever they go, reflect you. 
Then Jesus talks about something, well, it's rather shocking. In my opinion, it's probably not what I have prayed for right before I die. But I guess it shows me a lot that I need to spend some more time with God. But we're going to start at verse 11 and 12 and then jump to verse 20. But verses 11 and 12 read like this. Now I'm departing from this world. They're staying in this world. But I'm coming to you, Father. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name or your person so that they will be united just as we are. We're going to come back to that, but that is a scary prayer. Verse 12, during my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that no one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Jump down to verse 20. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I am praying that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the same glory you gave me, so that they might be one as we are one. We can do this. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus prays, protect the eleven by the power of your name so they will be united like we are united. Like we're on the same page. Like we have the same mission. Wow. I'm not asking you, Jesus said, to remove them. I'm asking you to protect them from the evil one. I'm asking you to insulate them, not isolate them. And it's really interesting right here because the reason is is that the evil one is active and most effective. Again, if you were to huddle up or you'd be quite honest in just some conversations, so many of us are thirsty to experience God's activity in our lives. But if we're honest again or wrestle through this, say, oh, I wish God were more active. I wish he were more present. I wish I would feel him more. I wish I would see him Act more. Well, the truth is, God's probably acting and moving and doing amazing things. Sometimes we just don't see it. But the opposite is also true. We continually believe that the enemy or Satan is this dude in a red suit that just kind of, you know, kind of blew it a few millennia ago and you know what he's just you know boys will be boys oh no no just like we don't see the enemy working excuse me god working in our lives at times 
I really believe most of us do not see how active the enemy is. And one of the most used strategies that the enemy uses is division. Is to divide. I can almost say this, is that anytime you see a family that's dividing, a church is that dividing, um, and just dividing anything, I believe that the enemy is at work. He is smiling. He is so pleased. Because just as Jesus prayed, if believers are not unified, their testimony will be thwarted. They will not reflect God well. Guaranteed. And so Satan, by him influencing, will blur who God is. And if God is blurred, oh, Satan is one happy guy. So Jesus prays, goes right to the heart for all believers to be unified because of the witness. Because light will be light and salt will be salt. They, believers, these disciples in particular, but all of us have the same ability to mirror the Father that Jesus had. As we stay connected, we have the power and the authority to reflect God well. And reflecting God well means His family does family well. How wonderful, whether your family's two, or your family's 22, or 102, to realize that they are unified. So God is unified when his family's unified. But let me remind you of a few things, because as soon as I use the word unified or unity, we all have these different things that kind of go through our minds. Um, let me just, just say this. Jesus did not pray for uniformity. All right? Uniformity is looking alike, reading the same version, and making sure that all of you are Awana leaders. All right? Now, do we need Awana leaders? Oh, yes, we do. But my guess is some of you probably shouldn't be Awana leaders. I'm just letting you know. All right? But what's so cool is that sometimes we look at unity as, as long as we all do the same thing, we're unified. That's not what Jesus was praying for. Jesus also is not praying for unanimity. Absolute agreement on every matter. Simply because there are lesser and greater matters. It is possible to differ while still being able to walk with God. You know, you can differ on dunking or sprinkling, and I think you'll be okay. You can differ on when Christ is going to come back and whether the millennium is really a legitimate thousand years 
or it's figurative. I know some of you are not like that, but, but you could differ on those things. You could differ on whether elder or congregational rule in a church. You can. And you can differ on the color of a carpet. Oh, Rick, that is so trivial. Yet, there have been church splits over decor. So you look at these things and say, okay, God isn't asking us to have complete agreement on every matter. But Jesus did pray for unity. And the scriptures are clear that God is not pleased with us having unity at every cost or any cost. I think realistically, sometimes there is cause to divide over essential doctrines. We are even right now, as elders, going through our constitution and asking the question. There's some things that probably need to be defined and redefined. What is it that is the most critical things that we want to draw a line in the sand. Now in Acts 15, and we're not going to read through Acts 15, but it's kind of unique. The church had been going for a while, but there was a group of people, we call them the Judaizers. And they were very, very passionate. They loved God, they loved forgiveness, they loved a lot of things. But what they did is add one thing to being saved. And that was, you need to be circumcised. All right? This was something the Jews did that set them apart and said, hey, you're a Hebrew nation. Well, what happened is this church started growing. They said, yes, you have to understand God's grace, but you also have to be circumcised. Well, they had a council together in Acts 15 and made it very, very clear that circumcision was not part of justification process. You know, you may ask, well, Rick, what are the essential doctrines? I may not list all of your essential doctrines. But if I'm going to look at what's important to me, what I'm going to be unified with churches about, this is what I would look at. The inspired, infallible Word of God. If there is a church or there are people that do not believe that this is God's word, you know, we'll probably not be united. That's all I'm saying. Doesn't mean I can't love them. Doesn't mean I can't encourage them. But I'm probably not going to be in ministry with them. You look at God along with a clear understanding of the Trinity. There's a whole lot of people that come to your doors and try to convert you and encourage you. Many of them don't believe Jesus is God. Well, I got to tell you, I'm probably not going to be unified with a group of people who say, well, Jesus was just a really good guy. Uh, no, Jesus wasn't just a really good guy. Just letting you know. I think we need to understand what salvation is. The full breadth of salvation where we're justified by faith without works. 
where we're sanctified as we stay connected with God, and He's the one that changes us from the inside out. And glorification that eventually we all are going to spend eternity with our God. I think we need to agree on the church. What's the mission of the church? Now, there's a lot of specific things, but, but what is the church actually called to do? I think that God does give certain churches ministry focuses and bents. And I could use some things. I mean, basically, God has asked us to love Him and love others well. We're to pick up the towel, we're to serve one another, we're to make disciples. These are critical. How you make disciples, how you serve certain people. Maybe there are churches called to do it a certain way. They have a certain clientele. They have a certain... You know, I'd look around and I would love to have every race on the planet represented right here. I would. But there are going to be some churches who are able to serve certain races and scenarios and situations. Maybe better than ours. I'm not saying we divide over that. What I'm saying is that God does give some of us bents. That's why I think there are churches or denominations that have special callings. I think this is what happens. And if you look, I, I think again if we split because we can't figure out the color of the carpet, oh, that's got to break God's heart. You know why? Oh, because uh, the one I grew up with, now we uh, don't talk to each other. No. It's because the outside world looks in and says, what kind of people are they? It's a witness thing. It really is. So there are folks that really are churches that focus on, well, those who are seeking. Those who don't have a lot of church language. You know what? Are they wrong or right? I don't think they're wrong or right. I think God's kind of given them a mission. And we could go through it. You know, there are certain churches that have a bent toward the military, especially in San Diego, and where different bases are. Does that mean, again, that they teach the gospel differently? No. But I bet their programs and their ministries and the things that they do really would look different than what we're doing. That's all. So I do think, realistically, that we would divide over essential doctrines. We would probably divide over ministry focuses, and it, and it doesn't mean divide as in being callous there. But we also, and this is critical, we would divide, the church would divide over people in sin or disobedience doesn't mean we don't love people who are being disobedient to God. But we would not partner with people who are blatantly disobeying the Scriptures. 
God talks a lot about leaven in the community. In Galatians chapter 2, if you look at starting at verse 11, very interesting text. Because what happened, Peter started living a little bit hypocritically. And Paul literally went to him and said, Hey, Pete, you're not loving people well. Confronted him literally about the sin. You know, if, if we're honest, our culture right now justifies lying, greed, selfishness, materialism, and sexual sin. You can use verses, you can find different texts, and you will, you know what, this is what I think God says. Paul was appalled in 1 Corinthians with the church at Corinth. They were dividing over teachers. Well, I like Jesus. <laughs> That's a good one. But I like Paul, and I like Apollos. Apollos is much more flashy. I'm sure if he were our main teacher, Paul, you're kind of persnickety. You're kind of like, you know, you dig right in, you go way into the, well, who's best? Paul just said, this is not right. This is not good. Sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was appalled with a relationship, this incestual relationship, and saying, you're allowing this person just to have fellowship in your community? Are you serious? I don't care what they believe in God. If they're blatantly, flagrantly, oh boy, sinning, you've got to be able to deal with it. In Titus, chapter 3, verse 11, the scriptures say this. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. Even after that, have nothing to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. And Paul is talking to Titus in the context of the church, in the context of people that say, I'm a believer. You need to draw a line. In Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul says this, And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for the people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. In Proverbs chapter, chapter 6, Solomon writes this, There are six things that the Lord hates. No, seven things that he detests. Haughty eyes? Yeah, proud person. A lying tongue? Sure. Hands that kill the innocent? Yeah, we agree with that. A heart that plots evil? Oh, yeah, yeah. Feet that raise to do wrong? But look at the last one. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who sows discord in a family. 
Why is God so bent on disunity? Because it reflects the Almighty in a perverted way. If there is anything that a church needs to deal with, it's disunity. Because it gives a false view of who God is. Unity keeps the church on mission. Unity, um, I mean, disunity distracts and Satan rejoices. I honestly cannot tell you as a pastor of the conflicts of disunity and the ability to be able to focus on that, how ministry has suffered. Then Jesus continues to pray. Verses 13 through 19. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with you or with them in this world so that they would be filled with joy. I have given them your word, Father, and the world hates them because they don't belong to this world just as I don't belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. So verse 17, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And I gave myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they could be made holy by your word. Jesus said this, I want them to experience joy. I have given them your word. Make them holy. And again, we've talked through this. Make them clean. Make them useful. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, talks about utensils. And when we confess our sin, we are clean. Make them, refine them, so they're going to be useful in my ministry. And then once they're holy, send them out. Send them out just like you sent me, Father. May they represent you. May they go to all areas of our world, of our neighborhood. And may they be salt and light. Then Jesus says this in verse 24. Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me. Where I am. Then they're going to see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. He's really just saying this, I want my family to be with me soon, Lord. I do. I love these guys. Bring them up to glory. And then when they get there, I want their eyes opened. I want them to see what I had for eternity. How cool is that? And then lastly, verse 25. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. But these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. Oh, righteous Father. Our world still is unsure of who you are. It is. 
But I know who you are. And I have revealed you so well to these guys. These disciples. They're going to continue to reveal you as they go out. They will be the church. They will be the redeemed. They will be the agents of reconciliation. And our world will see firsthand what love pouring through a family looks like. Whoa. You see, Jesus poured his heart out talking to the Father. He teaches us how to pray. First of all, for us, what we pray for. He teaches us how to pray for disciples or community. And he teaches us to understand what the church does. He clarified the mission and the plan and offers a grand hope for each one of us. How cool. How wonderful. How amazing. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come before you absolutely in awe of our position, of what you think of us, and that you have passed the baton unto us. Lord, we have been deceived so much that our lives don't matter, that it's not important to stay connected to you. But Lord, you've made a family here. And we have an opportunity to reflect you wherever we go. May we be unified as a church. May we have the same focus. May we understand what's important to you. Would you clarify our mission? And would we be the light on a hill? that would bring you glory in all we do and say. God, thank you for loving us, for sending your Son so we might be redeemed, but also, Father, for giving us a mission to join you as you reconcile the world around us. We thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.